A reading from Paul's letter to the Galatians. Brothers and sisters, I give an example from daily life. Once a person's will has been ratified, no one adds to it or annuls it. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, but it says, and to your offspring, that is, to one person who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance comes from the law, it no longer comes through the promise. But God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made. And it was ordained through angels by a mediator. Now a mediator involves more than one party, but God is one. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. But the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin, so that what was promised through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus said to the Judeans who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are descendants of Abraham, yet you look for an opportunity to kill me, because there's no place in you for my word. I declare what I've seen in the Father's presence. As for you, you should do what you have heard from the Father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. 
This is the gospel of the Lord. Before we pray, I'll just take the privilege of the microphone to embarrass a birthday boy. Tuck Bartholomew, happy 29th all over again. <laughs> take, your, uh, take the opportunity today to, uh, to give Tuck a birthday hug. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your word and for your spirit. We thank you for your love toward us in Christ. And we pray now that you would be with us, that you would bless us in our time together, that you would uh, make our hearts burn within us as we gaze upon Jesus afresh. We pray that um, the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this past week, our staff met, and we were talking about this Galatians series, and <clears throat> we were a little bit lamenting, Tuck and I were lamenting, like, man, Galatians is hard. This is a hard book. It's a, it's a weird book in some ways, and it feels like we're saying the same things over and over again, and maybe if you've been here over the last month or so, you're feeling that a bit too, that every week we kind of are, are belaboring the same point, but I think the reason we're doing that is because as Paul is writing this letter to the churches in Galatia, he really is addressing one main issue in the church. And really everything he says in this letter is basically like making this one main point, or he's presenting a theological argument to support his one main point, or he's giving pastoral instructions about how they ought to live in light of this one main point. And the one main point, as we've seen over the last few weeks, is basically just this. It's, you are all one in Christ, so act like it. You're all one in Christ, so act like it. The point is that God, in this display of shockingly extravagant grace, has given the gift of his Son, and he's given the gift of his Spirit to both the Jewish and non-Jewish people alike who would receive the gift by faith. And in so doing, God has erased all the old dividing lines that used to separate people groups from one another and from God. He's made them one in Christ. And so this letter is partly like Paul scolding the church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia for, for their leaning back into the old dividing lines they lived with before Christ. And it's partly Paul's teaching the Galatians about exactly what it is that God has done in Christ and in the Spirit and how that relates to what God has said and done before in the Jewish law. And it's partly Paul's life coaching right, for the Galatians. Like, what is their life together supposed to look like now that God has done what he's done? That he's given the gift of Christ and the Spirit that changes everything about everything with respect to how they live together as the community of faith. Cindy, looking forward to exploring what that means in a few weeks or over the next few weeks. How they live together as the community and how they relate to the world more, more broadly. The gift of Christ, it changes everything about everything Paul is saying to the Galatians. And while the occasion of the Galatian situation might seem really foreign to us, if you think about it, you know, the situation of, of Jewish and non-Jewish Christians trying to work out together for the first time 
what it looks like to be a family that's organized around Jesus and marked by participation in the Spirit rather than being organized around descent from Abraham and being marked by participation in Jewish law. Well, that seems really foreign to us because it is, for most of us at least. I think what Paul has to say in this letter about God about what God has done in Christ and the Spirit is every bit as relevant for you and me today as it is for the Galatians back then. Because this letter, it's not just about Jewish and non-Jewish people coming together as one family. More broadly, it's about how we, as the community of God's people in Christ, find our common bond in Jesus and not in the other identity markers toward which we so easily gravitate. And it's about love. What does humble, spirit-filled, Christ-like love look like, especially as we seek to move toward one another in real relationship, swimming upstream against the current of our various differences? And it's about trust. How do we, as followers of Jesus, who are seeking to be led by God's Spirit, how do we learn to trust God even when we don't fully get him? when we don't fully understand what he's doing in our lives and in the world today. And it's also about story. What story is it that's going to shape the way we live? What story are we telling ourselves uh, and others as we seek to make sense of our own lives and as we seek to live as God's witnesses in the world? These are all really relevant questions and concerns for us, and Paul's letter to the Galatians speaks right into those things in a very beautiful, very powerful, and relevant way. And specifically today, in this section from the middle of the letter, um, I think Paul speaks to all of these, actually. He speaks to all of them uh, as he unpacks for us really two central truths that he sees as kind of load-bearing walls of the point that he's trying to build and make in this argument uh, in the letter to the Galatians. And the first is this. Paul unpacks for us the faithfulness of God to keep his ancient promise and how God's faithfulness is the major theme that runs throughout the story of the Bible. And by implication... It's the major theme that runs throughout the story of the world and the stories of our very lives. The faithfulness of God. And the second thing he unpacks for us is the meaning of our baptism and how that ought to shape the way we live in relation to God and one another. And the rest of our time together this morning, I just want to spend reflecting on these two things that Paul unpacks for us here in this part of the letter. So first, let's think about the faithfulness of God to keep his ancient promise and what Paul says here. In God's giving the gift of Christ and the Spirit, Paul wants us to see that we see the, the big reveal. We see the big reveal of how God has all along been faithfully working behind the scenes to move his promise forward. Even when it didn't look like God was anywhere to be found, he was there. And he was working on behalf of his people. And he was working on behalf of the world he made and the world that he loves. Yesterday morning, I was reading with my daughter. She's 
almost five, and she's getting into the Narnia stories, and we were reading <coughs> at the breakfast table, we were reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we were at the section where uh, Aslan comes to the stone table, and um, he offers himself up, right, as the, as the innocent sacrifice. And they, they bind him to the stone table and they, and they kill him. And Susan and Lucy, the little girls, are there uh, grieving. They've witnessed this event and they're grieving as Aslan has died. And then, and then they're there and they see that the sky begins to turn red and then, and then gold. And then they hear the loud crack as the table breaks and they're, they're scared and they turn around and they see none other than Aslan himself, the lion, who has returned to life. And they're trying to wrap their minds around how in the world is this possible? And he says, look, the witch who, who killed him, she knows about the deep magic, but she only knows about the deep magic that goes back to the dawn of time. She doesn't know about the deeper magic that goes back farther than that. And as Paul is writing to the Galatians about the law and the promise of God, what he wants us to see, what he wants the Galatians to see is that the promise of God from way, way, way back, the promise he made to Abraham before the law was ever in view, it's like the deeper magic, it's the deeper thread that runs beneath the story of the law. And Paul says it's sort of like this living will that once it's ratified, it can't be changed. And since God ratified that unconditional promise to Abraham way back before all that law stuff got laid on top of it with its conditional promises of blessing for the people of Israel if they would keep it, right? If they would choose life and not death. Since God ratified that way back when, and it's the deeper current that runs beneath, the people's failure to live into the law it doesn't nullify or change God's promise that came before. Even when the law implodes on itself and goes kaput because the people fail to keep it, what's left beneath the rubble, it isn't the death and disaster you might expect, but it's the enduring promise of God who sticks with his people and keeps moving the promise forward, not based on our faithfulness, but on his and then Paul gives this super weird description in verses 19 and 20 of God giving the law to his people through angels and the mediator involving more than one party. And it's almost like he's taking us into this like angelic lawyer's office, right? Where God's lawyers and Israel's lawyers meet to make this deal and they shake on it. And like, look, we're prepared to offer you life-giving blessing if you're, you know, prepared uh, to offer us in faithfulness, you know, and to order your common life around, around the law God gives you. We, we, you know, we'll, we'll offer you blessing and make you an instrument of God's peace to the world deal. It's like bizarre, right? I mean, I don't know, I don't quite know what to do with these verses 19 and 20, but what Paul is, is contrasting here is that in comparison to the unconditional promise that God makes to Abraham, unilateral, unconditional, the whole law feels like this weird contract between two parties, which is not how it went on Mount Sinai, by the way. But in comparison, in contrast, it almost seems like that. And Paul describes the law as like this nanny, a disciplinarian, a childminder that God kind of hired to be the live-in au pair for Israel for a season. Um, depicting the life of God's people over thousands of years as like 
the way a child grows up. And so the law becomes like the au pair that lives in the house and takes care of the kid for a while, for a season. Has an important job to do, but it's a temporary job. And then in the fullness of time, when Christ would come and God would pour out his spirit, there would be a new way. The law will have done its job. And he says, look, the Old Testament law, it's not contrary to God's purposes. Of course not. God gave it. But it's not identical to God's purposes either. And what God is doing in Christ and the Spirit now cannot be straitjacketed by the limits of the law that was always just meant to be the au pair, the childminder. It's relevant not only for the Galatians as they figure out their life together in a mixed Jewish and Gentile church for the first time, but this is relevant for us as well as we learn how to read the Bible, right? As we learn, what do we do with the Old Testament? How do we pull it toward our lives? How do we read it now that God has spoken again in Jesus and we read our Old Testament to our lives through him? Look forward to exploring that more deeply as we look at Deuteronomy over the next couple weeks in that class and, and a theology of place. And it's also instructive for us in the way that, like, look, how does all this hold together? As we look at what God has done, as we look at the various things God has said, as we look at the turns in the story that seem to go one way and then seem to go this way, as God seems to want this, but then this happens, how do we make sense of it all? Aren't there contradictions? Aren't there things that don't add up? What Paul says to the Galatian church is, look, the way this all holds together is not on some flat plane of logic. As if everything that we read in the Bible is some factoid that fits nicely in some two-dimensional shape. But it coheres by way of story. It coheres by way of a plot line that's going somewhere. And all the turns and all the twists and all the dark shadows and all the things that are clear and all the things that are unclear, all of them are part of a story that's moving toward the fullness of Christ and the Spirit who have now come that God is now unleashed in the world. It's instructive for us to see how God is moving the promise forward. God is up to more than we can see. And the call of faith on our part, as God calls us to trust him, it's not to be able to explain all that God is doing, but to follow him in trust, regardless of what he's doing. And what we see in Christ Maybe the most important thing we see in Christ, Paul wants us to see, God proves himself trustworthy. He's continuing to move the promise forward. He never bailed on his people. He didn't abandon his ancient promise. He didn't abandon the family. But the deep current of God's faithfulness has been the major theme running through the story the whole time. And in Jesus and in the Spirit, we see the big reveal as God pulls back the curtain and makes known the mystery that lay hidden for ages. How do we live in relation to this God who calls us to trust him even when we don't understand all that he's up to? How do we live in relation to a God that we can't wrap our minds around, a God who is so much greater than us, but calls us to entrust our lives to him? And how do we learn to see that the story of his faithfulness, the story of our lives and of the world, is one in which his faithfulness runs deep throughout the whole? 
If you've been getting our daily prayer emails, um, you can sign up for those on the way, uh, by the way, on the website. But one of the things as we do daily prayer, one of our spiritual practices this fall, uh, there's, there's a, little, a little piece called the daily examine that's uh, included in our evening prayer. And it just has a couple of questions that orient us each evening to reflecting on our day so that we begin to pay attention to these things and look upon our own day through eyes of faith as we begin to look upon even just the story of our day as a story in which the faithfulness of God is the deep current that runs throughout the whole. What were the places that were hard? Where did you experience frustration and hurt and disappointment? Where was life out of whack, out of joint? Where did you feel like you were distant from God and things just weren't right? Let's name those things. And then on the other hand, where, where did you experience joy? Where were you close with God? Where did you experience kindness or love or or glimpses of life as it ought to be? Let's name those things. And then let's look upon our day and review our day through eyes of faith, asking God to give us light to see the story of our own day through eyes of faith and to recognize the deep current of God's love and faithfulness and presence that runs throughout the whole. And how do we begin to live day after day after day like that, so that as we live the story of our life, we recognize the deep thread of his faithfulness, and we recognize that the story of my life is caught up in the same story of the world that Paul is explaining here to the Galatians, a story God hasn't turned his back on, but has been moving forward all along toward this moment when all things will be made new. And God's people would be restored to their identity as God's children and their vocation as God's instrument of blessing in the world. This great calling that belongs to Abraham's family that has now been reconstituted in Christ and the Spirit. Just one thought on um, cultivating a habit of learning to live with this God who's trustworthy and faithful but that we don't always get Rowan Williams, in his book, um, Being Disciples, talks about prayer as bird watching, which is a wonderful little image where he talks about what do you do when you're bird watching? What do you do? You sit quietly and expectantly, and you don't know what's going to happen next. You're hopeful that something will happen next, but you just don't know, right? And he takes up that, that image of bird watching and says, what if we prayed like that? What if we came to God not so much with our own agendas and all of our sort of fixed ideas about who God is, what God ought to do, and kind of what God should be doing today or must be doing today, but what if we sat quietly and expectantly and asked God to show up and surprise us, to reveal himself to us? What if we sat in hope and attentiveness, listening to what God would say, whatever that may be, looking for how God would show up, whatever that may look like. Prayer as bird watching. I love that. And I think it's a, a wonderful little, uh, little habit that we could cultivate as we reflect on our day, as we come and sit with the Lord and begin to entrust ourselves, not to a God that we think we can wrap our minds around, but to a God we expectantly hope and pray will show up and reveal himself to us and help us to recognize the deep current of his faithfulness in our lives. The second thing Paul unpacks in this section of the letter is the meaning of our baptism. 
Look at what he says, sort of beginning in verse 26. You're all children of God through faith, right? You're all children of God through faith. You're all one in Christ. You are all one in Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesse Penn Lewis has called this the Magna Carta of humanity. This statement that is this radical reframing of relationships uh, within humanity. And of course, this is a verse that's been pressed into service of pretty much any agenda that you can think of in the life of the church. Some legitimate, some less so. Um, But you know, the worst abuse of this verse has probably been the church's neglect of it. To try to explain it away as something a lot less transformative and revolutionary than it really is. You know, when Paul says this, he's not denying distinctions. He's not saying that there's actually, like, no longer a slave. He lived in a world in which slavery persisted. And he's not saying there's actually not any more Jewish people or non-Jewish people. Of course there are. And just, of course, there are males and females. But what he's saying is that those distinctions that used to have such an importance in ordering the world, they don't have that importance anymore because of Jesus. What they used to mean, they'd no longer mean. You see, these things, these groups, they represent the three main dividing lines, right? The three main barriers to privilege, the ethno-religious, the socioeconomic, gender, These are the three major barriers to oneness and privilege that mark people as different from one another. And what Paul is saying in this verse is that these cannot anymore be functional barriers inside of the community that's gathered around the person of Christ. Because God's gift in Christ and the Spirit has come to all of these people in the same way. God has disregarded these barriers. We must as well. There was a famous Jewish prayer that Paul was almost certainly aware of that basically went, at the time of, at at Paul's time, it basically went, blessed are, are you, O Lord, that you've not made us a heathen, a slave, or a woman. Yeah, let that sit with you for a minute. Yeah, beautiful, right? No. These are the three groups that were excluded from studying the law. These are the three groups whose life and participation in, in, the, in the community of faith were particularly limited and given a particular place that was different from the Jewish non-enslaved male who got to be in the middle, in the place of privilege. And of course, the whole religious life of the Jewish community reflected that The sacrament of inclusion, of circumcision, reflected that. It's applied to the males alone. And the females belong to the community through whatever male they're attached to. Their father, their husband, or even their son. But now there's a new family order. And what God has done in Christ and in the Spirit is he has expanded the family to be inclusive of all of these peoples. And not inclusive of them indirectly, where they all have to pass through some little bottleneck, like the men in their lives or like the Jewish law, 
but directly. You are all children of God, and guess what? You are marked as children of God with the washing of baptism and the clothing of Christ, and it comes to all of you in exactly the same way. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile or a slave or non-slave, whether you are male or female, you are marked as God's child and you are an equal member of God's community. You are not a second-class citizen. You are beloved, full-fledged. And just because you can't study the law according to law doesn't mean that you're not a first-class, full-fledged citizen of the family of Abraham that has now been expanded through what God has done in Christ. You belong to God's people as a sibling to the other members of the family. You belong in God's family as an equal to everyone else. And when you think about what that means, you aren't worse than the rest of us. You belong here every bit as much as we do. You aren't better than the rest of us. You have no reason to look down on anyone else here. The Magna Carta of humanity. There's nothing else like it that belongs to Paul's world. There's a new oneness that God has created in Christ, and the oneness to which he calls the church in the life of the Spirit is so much more than avoiding discrimination across these lines, but it's actually seeking the flourishing of all. You'd expect at the end of that verse where he's going down the list, right, the Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, you'd expect him to say male nor female, right, the nor. But he says and, which is an echo of Genesis, right? God created them in his own image, male and female. And Paul's making a point that the new creation of God in Christ and the Spirit has even blown through the barriers of the original creation. That the new surpasses the old, has brought the old to its fulfillment, and a new day has dawned. And what's most true of you in Christ is not the old labels and categories and distinctions that belong to you because of the order of the world. The categories of the world don't speak most truly about you. Your past doesn't speak most truly about you. Your circumstances don't. It's not your job or what you contribute to the world, not your academic pedigree or your professional resume, not the relationships that you do or don't have in your life. These things don't get to define you. Your secrets don't define you. Your sin doesn't define you. Your fears don't define you. Your failures don't. Your family of origin doesn't. Your quirkiness and your personality type, these things don't speak most fundamentally about who you are. It's not what makes you impressive or what embarrasses you. It's not what you love about yourself or the things that drive you crazy about yourself. These are not who you most fundamentally are. It's not the traumas that you've endured that have left you scarred, and it's not the triumphs that you've enjoyed that have given you a sense of self-importance. None of these things gets to speak most truthfully about who you are. None of those things ultimately defines what you're worth, what your status is. Not even you get to decide those things. 
And that's good news, not bad news. As hard as that may be uh, to wrap our incorrigibly individualistic, self-actualizing, autonomous, postmodern, modern, Western minds around that reality that, that it's actually good news, not bad news, that I don't define myself, but that my identity is a gift for me to receive, not something for me to achieve. And what Paul says here about our baptism is that the word that our baptism speaks over our life is just this. You are clothed in Christ. You are a child of God. And you are all one in him. Who are you? Most truly, who are you? You are known and loved by God. You are beautiful and beloved, and God has given you a dignity, and he delights in you. You're God's child. You're in God's family because he's adopted you, and he's made you his own. He's made you his child. He's made you siblings with his other children. He's made you heirs to the ancient promise he made to Abraham about his family. But here's the thing. And this is what gets to the oneness thing that Paul's urging on the Galatian church. Those beautiful things that God speaks over you in your baptism that are so true and so important to believe and live into. God doesn't just speak them over you. He speaks them over your brother and over your sister. He speaks them over your neighbor. He speaks them over the people in your life who are, who are toughest to love. God delights in them too. Those people that are so hard for you to move toward in charity and affection and patience and kindness. That's God's beloved child. You are one in Christ. Act like it, Paul says. God's grace and love is enough for them too, just that it is for you. What do you think it would be like as you begin to look at other people, your neighbor, your brother, your sister, through the eyes of Christ, through the one who's clothed them with himself, to see them, not for who you say they are, but for who God says they are. And then what would it be like to do the same with yourself? To actually look upon yourself, not with the harsh, critical glare of scornful, judging eyes, but to extend the compassionate gaze of Christ even to yourself and to let that be enough. If you're reading the liturgy of the ordinary right now, if, you're, if you've made your way in and have gotten as far as chapter three in the liturgy of the brushing teeth, the liturgy of the bathroom mirror, there's a wonderful little part in there where, where Tish Warren talks about uh, participating in a house blessing where the priest anoints the bathroom mirror and then prays that when the people in the house look in the mirror, they would see themselves as beloved images of God, not relating to their bodies and to their lives with the categories that the world gives them, but according to the truth of who they are in Christ. In other words, that as they gaze upon themselves in the mirror, that they would remember their baptism, that they would see themselves as God sees them, clothed in Christ. 
You are one in Christ. You are clothed in Christ. You are marked as God's children. And the story of your life is caught up in this great story of God's promise, a story that God keeps moving forward faithfully day after day after day to that great moment when all things will be made new. And God's behind-the-scenes faithfulness is the deep current that runs through it all. Will you trust him with your life? Will you trust him with your neighbor? And will you live today according to what is true of you because of Christ and the Spirit? You are one in him. You are beloved and called to love, known and loved by God. May he give us grace to live like it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we give you thanks for the great compassion and love and mercy you show us in your Son. We thank you for this letter to the Galatians, which is often perplexing and convoluted, but we thank you for the ways in which uh, you have moved your own apostle to speak into this very particular moment in the life of your church, but in a way that can bear fruit in all moments and in all places, even here among us today. Thank you for your deep current of faithfulness. Uh, thank you for the new identity you've given us in Christ as you've marked us as your own and loved us. Would you bring these things to fullness in our lives? Would you fan into flame this spark of love within us? And would you help us by your spirit to live as one in Christ in whose name we pray, amen.